the most critical thing with private lenders. You want as much as possible to have a bulletproof exit strategy and even a backup to that exit strategy if the first one fails, ideally. Yeah. Number two would just be knowing your client and knowing the file, right? So if we come at you with any questions, we don't want you know the broker to ideally be you know humming and hawing about the file and be like, oh yeah, I'll get back to you. The more you know about the client and the file, the chances are the higher level of comfort we're going to have in approving that one. Thanks for tuning in to the Canadian Private Lenders Podcast, the show about starting a private lender in Canada, the mortgage industry, and the real estate industry. Your hosts are Neil Andrino and Ryan McNeil. Enjoy. All right, let's jump into it. We're good. We got episodes. Episode. <laughs> <laughs> Welcome to episode 16 of the Canadian Private Lenders Podcast where Ryan learns how to speak. <laughs> yes, absolutely struggling here. Thanks, Neil, for uh, covering me there. But man, we're not even past noon yet, Neil, but uh, I apparently need a nap. So anyways, let's uh, let's jump into the episode here. We get an exciting one today. We had our first round of uh, listener questions. Yeah, this should be good. So we yeah. can actually know what people are thinking about and what's on their minds. Yeah, absolutely. I think we're going to go through four questions today, a mix of borrowers and, and mostly uh, broker partners who have... Uh, kindly reached out with some questions for us to answer. So um, on that note, Neil, let's jump right into it. What do we got for question one? Yeah, number one's coming in from Moncton, a fellow named Mike. This is a good question. I think sometimes we forget, like not everyone does this, and so it's something to consider. But how do you calculate loan to value? We talk about it a lot. And so how do we do it? It's a pretty easy thing overall. I mean, not to make it sound like a stupid question, but... Yeah, no, I'm glad. Uh, and thanks, Mike, for asking this one. I think this is a really good one for us to go through. It's a critical measure for lending in general, but yep. uh, especially in private lending. So there's a couple different ways to calculate loan to value and relatively straightforward as well. So let's start with a property that's already owned by the client. Say they're coming to the private lender for a refinance of that property. Yeah. Simple way to calculate loan to value would be to get an appraisal. Okay, that appraised value, say it's $400,000, they're looking for a loan of $300,000. Yep. Loan size divided by appraised value, 300 divided by 400, 75% loan to value for that scenario. Okay, Boom. very straightforward. That's probably the most common way to calculate loan to value, loan size divided by appraised value. However, there's different scenarios that we experience right in this business. So we also deal with purchases, quite yep. a big part of our book as well. So purchases can be calculated different ways, but typically you want to incorporate the purchase price as part of your calculation. So in this scenario, purchase price would actually replace appraised value and you'd look at purchase price. So maybe purchase price is 500,000. They're looking for $300,000. You'd go 300,000 divided by 500,000 loan size divided by purchase price. And you do that because purchase price doesn't always equate to what the appraisal is. And exactly. either in both directions, sometimes you get people getting amazing deals where they're like, I'm paying 500 grand, it's appraised at 800. Or vice versa, sometimes they're paying 500 grand, but the appraiser can only justify 400. And they might have a reason on why it's worth the 500 to them and how they can still get their exit. But that's why purchase is an actual true number of what the transaction is taking place at. And so usually it'll trump. But a lot of banks, and it probably is worth considering, and sometimes also take the lower of the two. Yep. Yep, the lower of the two, depending on the transaction. I mean, that's obviously the safest way to go is to take the lesser of the two. So often, you know, just because you're purchasing this property, the bank and private lenders for that matter are still likely to get an appraisal just to confirm that value or confirm it's in the ballpark. There is 
some scenarios where you may consider appraisal over purchase price, like Neil said, you know, could be because it's lower, but it could be like an off-market transaction as well. Yep. Or maybe a better example would be like a non-arms-like transaction, right? So maybe yep. you've got like a brother selling a property to his sister. Yeah. And he wants to discount that property to 200000 even though it's worth three fifty. Yeah. Right? In that scenario, it actually might make sense to use the appraised value or at least give some yeah. credence to that that appraised value yeah. and incorporate that into the transaction. You know, at the same time, you, you obviously want your clients to have some skin in the game too. So you just got to take that into account. And the last one I wanted to touch on here is for construction and renovation files. So Neil, you, you'll know this well being a yep. real estate investor. Yep. We look at this two different ways. So you have to incorporate the as-is value of a property and the as-complete value of a property. So let's look at a renovation file, for example. Say they're purchasing it $300,000 and they're putting a couple hundred thousand dollars into it and it's going to appraise at five fifty. dollars So your initial calculation is going to be whatever amount you initially advanced. Maybe it's two hundred dollars of the three hundred. dollars so your initial advance divided by your as-is value, that's your initial, your starting LTV. Mm-hmm. And then your final LTV is going to be the total loan facility divided by the as-complete value or the yep. ARV, yep. right? So you're going to have two different calculations for construction and renovation files. And a couple things to add to that and another item is if you're doing draws along the way, you'll usually need an appraiser to give you a percentage completion of the renovation. So yep. if it's a $500,000 reno, and they claim to be 50% done, or the appraiser can confirm that, then you can use that as $250,000 value, and then you can put out your loan against that. The other thing to consider, it's always cumulative debt. So it's not just your debt that's on there. If you're going in second place, or there is another loan out there, you need to add that in to your calculation, right? So your LTV will go up a fair bit. You can't be like, well, I'm only at 30% LTV. Yeah, but there's another one that's for 50%, so your total is at 80. The other item is in blanket mortgages. You need to consider all the factors. You need to get the asset values for every single item that's being blanketed and then the total debt loads on all of them and then combine them to get your total blanket loan to value. Yeah, great point there, Neil. And I forgot to mention that. So that's um, on the construction and renos. Like, as you mentioned, you get your percent complete as you go. So you're actually calculating LTV at every checkpoint, not just at the mm-hmm. start and the end. You're, you're doing it every time a draw is requested mm-hmm. to make sure you maintain an appropriate loan to value. And also on your point, if you're in second position, you have to incorporate that first mortgage balance in addition to your loan divided by the value to calculate your loan to value for second position. Okay. Yep. Cool. Good question. Yeah. There, there is some nuance to it. It's not as simple as just exactly. Yeah. Especially in this in the private side of things, because there's a typically you're doing more moving parts in construction and there's yep. some sort of story there. So exactly. Yep. Number two, Sam Horseman from East Coast Mortgage Brokers. He's based in Truro. Nice fellow. I met yeah. him there a little while back. So as a private lender, what are the top three things a broker can do to ensure a deal goes as smooth as possible? Yeah, awesome question. I love getting this question from brokers. And I know Sam's relatively new to the industry as well. So excellent question. So a couple things that come to mind here. Number one being exit strategy. Okay, so this is the most critical thing with private lenders. You want as much as possible to have a bulletproof exit strategy and even a backup to that exit strategy if the first one fails, ideally. Yeah. Number two would just be knowing your client and knowing the file, right? So if we come at you with any questions, we don't want, you know, the broker to ideally be, you know, humming and hawing about the file and be like, oh yeah, I'll get back to you. The more you know about the client and the file, the chances are the higher level of comfort we're going to have in approving that one. And the third point I'd say would be doc package. So like we're, you know, relatively light from a document requirement perspective, 
but ideally a broker is submitting that doc package together and not submitting an additional 10 documents on top of it just because they have them, right? Like yeah. that can slow things down. It's a or, pain for everybody. Yeah, exactly. It just makes the process inefficient. If we didn't ask for certain documentations, and especially if you're going to a financial institution like a bank, and if you send them 10 additional documents, chances are that you're giving them more ammo to decline your file. Yeah. Right? Yeah, true. So just a you know, <laughs> seamless submission package is ideal as well. Sam's actually an industry plant. Ryan Gum asked this question because so, he's getting tired of you guys sending in these brutal packages. No, this it's is- relatively easy with most of our brokers too. Like, you know, we always, I think we've even mentioned this on a past episode before, Neil, but like, we're super simple. We look for appraisals. We look for a way to confirm income that they can service the loan. And we're looking for property insurance at the end of the day. Nice I, and easy. I will say to that point, like... I've had a fair number of people call me asking about the business and wanting money. And I've had a few of them try to submit to me that they're not brokers. They're just clients. And they just forward me a bunch of emails. And over the course of the day, I get like seven different emails with different attachments to it and this and that. And I'm like, oh my God. Okay, you need to call a broker, put together a file and submit this because this is a mess. I feel bad for brokers because they're surely dealing with that every single day. Uh, You know, streaming, a steady stream of of docs coming in, right? Like... (laughs) I just click forward. Uh, I have a package and I'm just like, you know, I I mean, I get it. I get it. But, you know, the good brokers, you know, they just see past that and they package it all up together. Have that all is all one doc package that they can just send over either at the time of submission or as they're early on in the process. And a lot of them now I find have their websites. Almost every single one of them I've dealt with now has a website set up that it it intakes all the documents. Yep. It's like I forward it and like, put it on the website yes, and I'm exactly. like, okay, fine. <laughs> and I mean, that's a secure way of doing it too, right? You're yeah. going through a secured platform that way and, you know, less risk of uh, having your, your documents attacked or someone finding your information. <laughs> Number three. Yeah. So Sam actually had a follow-up here for you, Neil. Yep. So Sam wanted to know how does one get into the investment side of Keystone Capital mm-hmm. and are you actively looking for investors? Give me a call. Yes, we are. (laughs) (laughs) But in all seriousness, yeah, I mean, yes, always actively looking for investors. I think at every stage of the business, we will be. And getting involved, I mean, there's a bunch of different ways you can do it, but calling me is your best option. We set a time, we can meet in person, and uh, we can kind of discuss everything about what Keystone is. I want to make sure you have a full understanding of what our business looks like and what the fund does. And this way you can be educated on it and understand any of the risks that you're taking on and actually a lot of the reason why you'd want to invest with us because a lot of people like to try and do it directly themselves and maybe get burned and then they they may appreciate the value of what a fund can do for them but yeah plain and simple that the best way is, is to reach out to me and then we can spend some time together and maybe go for a meal and i can explain everything to you and we can we can discuss what a rate of return would look like for you and, and what that is moving forward we try and make it as easy as possible for you so yeah if you are interested in investing or even just curious what it, what it looks like Give me a shout. Number four, Hannah Martins. My girl, Hannah. Hannah. With Virtue Life Financial. She's in PEI. She's been great with us. You guys known her. You've known her for a long time before, right? Well, not that long. I think Hannah's been only in the business for a couple of years, but she's uh, she's a rising star. In the she's growing fast. Oh, right? yeah, yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. 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 She's awesome. Big supporter of ours and, and really appreciate her uh, reaching out on this one. Posting stories. Yes, absolutely. <laughs> So Hannah asks, how do you see the role of private lending evolving in the Canadian real estate market over the next few years, especially in light of higher interest rates, the amount of upcoming renewals, and high household debt loads? Oh, challenging us with this This one. This is, yeah. Yeah, I like it. So I got a couple points on this, Neil. I'd be interested to hear your thoughts on this as well. But um, 
you know, I think in general, the sentiment of the market is that liquidity is going to continue to tighten. Banks and institutions, lending institutions in general will continue to tighten. And this in the mortgage business is likely going to send more business to alternative lenders. That's a trend we've already seen for the past couple of years. Yeah. I expect that to continue for the least the next couple of years. Okay. Yeah. That in turn also historically has meant since our pipeline of deals increases, we see better quality deals coming in as well. Okay. Yeah. So not that that necessarily changes underwriting criteria, but you want to obviously allocate your funds to the best quality deals that are going to perform for your book. Yeah. So privates in general, I think are going to see better quality deals. Yeah. And those tough ones, like those credit delinquent files that are maybe a bit more rural, it's going to be tough to find a solution for those ones for brokers. I think mm-hmm. it's going to be really tough to find solutions for those ones. So that's something to keep in mind, I think, over the next couple of years is that those challenging ones, if you don't have that same exit strategy that you might have had six, 12 months ago, private lenders aren't going to want to pick those ones up and hold them on their book and then risk delinquency because they're having to renew for the next year or two after that. Yeah. Right? And then my final kind of point here too, is that obviously there's the risk of asset values declining. You know, we've seen this in Ontario already in the past year, you know, pretty substantial declines in some major markets outside of the GTA. You know, we're not seeing that locally here to this point. I think Neil, you and I are both feeling relatively optimistic with where price points will be uh, locally in the next couple of years, but we still need to monitor that very closely you know, some other risks being inventory floods coming to the market, you know, maybe when rates start to decline, that could potentially be an area where values could start to decline. But I feel that's unlikely at this current moment. Yeah. And the other thing, you know, locally here, at least too, is unemployment rates. Obviously, that would be a key indicator for, you know, values potentially declining in the market. Unemployment's been relatively stable, I'd say probably more stable than was expected. I expect you know, unemployment will probably rise in 2024, but hopefully it's at a manageable level. Yeah, 100%. I'm scratching my head over here a lot because I'm just like, I have a million things. I'm always considering like, where is the marketplace going? And I think Canada's unique on the little bit on the, not really unique, super unique, but just where we have, we've had so much upward pressure on our real estate for so many years. Like, I mean, like Ontario's had like 30 years of this. And we were talking about this before we turned the mics on, but Canada's a great place to live. And on the world stage provides a lot of value in, in security and safety that it's always had. And you're seeing that with the continued immigration numbers. So what happens is when you have this, like the pricing, and then of course, everyone's seeing the stats where the pricing of real estate is so much higher in comparison to the growth of wages. And then when you have the standard, like the bigger banks, they all qualify based on wages, but it, that's no longer going to, it already doesn't work. In most provinces, it already does not work. And so they're coming up with a lot of these wealth-based programs to qualify people, but it also leaves a ton of room for privates because privates can work on the understanding of how, where the valuations are, right? And they, they're less focused. Like we, we don't sit here and talk about DSR all day, right? We don't. And if we were talking about a regular lending pod, DSR would be everything. Yep. Everything you deal with, even on the commercial side, it's all DSR, DSR, DSR. Like that's all they, they really look at, but it's making less and less sense. And I don't know, this is where like part of me is like, oh my God, have we gone too far with this? But like, again, I think about Ontario and I don't think DSR has made any sense in a lot of those scenarios for most of the time. And you, I even know, like when you consider like, how is everyone living when there's so many people up there with million dollar homes? Yes, they're making more money, but are they making enough to necessarily be servicing that? Probably not. And when I talk to people who work in the big banks, they're like, yeah, it's all wealth-based approvals. Yeah. Okay. Well, where's all their wealth in their house? I'm like, oh, okay. This is interesting. And so, yeah, I think the marketplace for private 
banking and lending will continue to grow and we'll just based on where our marketplace in Canada is going and has gone, it makes a lot of sense. My only thought in my head is, is similar to how Canada handles most industries, will it become extremely regulated? Yeah. Right. They'll start to put in a lot of, a lot of controls. I mean, you see that now with a lot of industries when they have big growth phases, yep. a lot of control comes in and it, it can really change the landscape, uh, put some pressure on margins potentially. And it, it's good to some extent, right? They're trying to protect the consumer, but ultimately almost every time they've put in the rules, it's honestly actually forced things further up. So I, I, that's the one thing that I would think that's in the back of my head all the time is like, what's going to be the change in industry on, on the regulation yep. side or taxation side, maybe? Yeah, I really like that point. I think that's definitely um, a risk in the next couple of years for alternative lenders in general is increased regulation. You know, we've seen it ramp up a little bit in the last couple of years, but the more share that continues to move to alternative lenders, the more focus that's going to be on there, right? Yeah. So I was talking to a private lender the other day and and he suspects within the next couple of years, there's going to be proof of down payment required for private lendings, uh, yeah. private lenders and for confirmation of three months bank statements as well. Yeah. So that no would way. really change the landscape. Wow. I don't know if it'd be something you'd have to adapt to, but not impossible you, either, right? Do you think it would turn then more to like brokers, direct brokering deals with that eliminated? Where you'd have people then going, just calling a broker, like I got $5 million cash. You just bring me deals and all you have to underwrite them and do all of it. Like, is that, do you think that would start to take off or that's still too burdensome? And there's, it depends on the province too, right? Cause the regulations are different. You see that a lot more in Ontario where mm-hmm. private lenders have to have a brokerage license, whereas yeah. in Atlanta, Canada, you need a lending license. It's just, yeah. it's just different depending on, on the market. I'm not exactly sure how it works in uh, out West, but yeah, it's one of those things that I don't know, it'd be difficult to predict how that would evolve. But I think some of the regulations we've seen come in in the last couple of years have sort of eliminated more of the mom and pop private lenders and have had more share come to the more formalized, like the mix, the more institutional private lenders are backed by big capital. And there's good and bad with that. But that's one trend that we've seen recently. Yeah. As a whole, I think it'll be positive because ultimately the government knows, regulators know that like without that, the real estate market could be in for a big hit. Because plain and simple just wouldn't be where it is without the private lending. Yep. But I think what would cause a turn, it's like anything, is if we had a big explosion, a big collapse in some capacity or a huge change in pricing, and it was kind of attributed to the less regulated side of things, and then they were to then, I think, be pretty aggressive with it from right. external pressures. But ultimately, I think they know that the real estate market really is a big part of our economy, and they need it to keep going. For sure. So. Yeah, major downside risk. Anyways, Hannah, yeah. now they've sent me for a spin here. I'm just going through a full crisis of what's the future, yeah. what does the future hold? Yeah. No, that's good. We really appreciate the questions um, for those who answered, and we'll definitely do this again down the road, Neil. So yeah. any of our broker partners or any uh, listeners out there who have questions, please send them in. Yeah. Uh, we look forward to doing this again. Hopefully you found it helpful. 100%. Thanks for listening, guys. Thanks. Hey guys, it's Neil Andrino, your co-host and your co-founder at Keystone Capital and Director of Investor Relations. I'm also a real estate agent, real estate investor, and business owner. And your co-host here, Ryan McNeil. I'm the co-founder and president of Keystone Capital Group. Keystone Capital Group is licensed under the Mortgage Regulations Act of Nova Scotia, license number 3000549, and through FCMB, license number 88799. And keep in mind, the views of this podcast are for informational purposes only and is not financial advice.